How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. <laughs> Tom, that was great. Because it's your own style. You're not like doing Mark's thing. Yeah, you got to judge it up. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, there's there's no reason to duplicate uh, someone else when you have your own wonderful style and personality. So thank you so much. That's so true. just so everybody knows, Tom McCoy, my my co-host, is here tonight. Mark Styles taking the night to do some other things that are very important. But we have remarkable guest tonight. Before I say that, we've got Ben in studio. Hi, Ben. Glad to have you here. Our great Benipotent, who is our WATD producer. But now, here's what's really going on tonight. Tom, could you please introduce our guest? My honor. He is a leading authority on biotechnology's implications for our ideas of identity, rights, and citizenship, with a particular focus on race and justice. He is the author of Race in a Bottle, the story of Bidil and racialized medicine in a post-genomic age, and Race in the Brain, what implicit bias gets wrong about the struggle for racial justice. He is currently a professor of law and biology at Northeastern University School of Law. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Jonathan Kahn, the yeah. great Kahn. Woo! Hello, Professor Kahn. It's so good to have you here. Great to be here, Joe. It is great. And just, I think, full disclosure, we were just talking before the show because John and I go back to seventh grade. Seventh grade. We were in school together in seventh grade. So we've known each other 50 years. It's crazy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's just crazy. And you're, I don't know. I'm only 39 years old. I don't know about you. Yeah. Well, you were, you were like a protege. It was one of those like yeah, right, remarkable yeah. test tube kids. It was just yeah. like, how does this guy do this? It's almost... It's like an organoid, so it's amazing. Um, so where are you actually right now? Because you're not in Boston. No, I'm, I'm actually in Minneapolis right now for the duration of COVID um, because I was sort of in, in the process of transitioning from a position I had out here at a law school to Northeastern where I just started teaching. Um, and uh, so I was sort of back here um, in between things when, when COVID hit and I'm sort of here for the duration now. I've been teaching remotely yeah so wow it's just crazy the way this has happened because you were on the show a couple of years ago before anybody knew about covid but we were talking then about your book had just come out race on the yeah. brain we we're talking about implicit bias and the biology and it seemed like you know there was a lot to talk about then but now here it is even more with george floyd and all the stuff yeah. that's going on so what do you make of all of this? Well, and that's, yeah, and that's been amazing, too. I mean, because I'm in Minneapolis now, which is where where that all, all happened. Um, and, I mean, of course, it's, you know, repercussions happening everywhere and continuing <clears throat> to happen. But, um, but I was thinking about this, and, you know, one of the things that just sort of immediately struck me, um, 
I, th there are a number of, you know, so many things, right, to, to sort of talk about here. But most immediately, I was struck actually just last night watching the um, sort of, you know, dipping in and out of the Democratic National Convention and listening to Kamala Harris's speech. And it really hit me. At one point, she said, well, she's talking about, you know, sort of difficult times that we're in and all this. And there's been a lot of talk about relationship between COVID and Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd protests and sort of the disproportionate racial impact of COVID on communities of color and things of this sort. And the sort of, you know, issues, people saying, you know, where we've got the COVID pandemic, but we've also got this pandemic of racism um, and they're sort of intersecting. But, but Harris said at one point, she said, you know, certainly, you know, one thing we do know, there is no vaccine for racism. Mm. And she said, you know, there is there's no way to avoid doing the hard work of, of anti-racism. And that, I mean, I felt like, well, you know, that's, that's my book, right? Um, right. Because um, <clears throat> it's this idea right there that, that there is no simple technical fix for racism. And people literally have talked about, and, is, you know, this sort of, this is what originally led me to this topic um, about implicit bias and, and racism. People literally talk about, oh, well, could some drugs lessen your racism, right? Things of this sort. And, um, and that's, just, that's just not happening. Um, but, but, but this concept, the idea of this technical fix for racism, I thought was very powerful. And the way Harris brought it up, I thought was powerful to realize that, that it's not easy, right? That racism has been with us for centuries. Um, and it's not, unfortunately, going away anytime soon, even though, I mean, people, people have been fighting racism for centuries, too. Um, but, it's, um, but it's long, hard work. It's a slog. Um, and I think the recognition of that, that it's hard, doesn't mean, you know, doesn't mean it can't be done, doesn't mean progress isn't possible. Um, but sort of the first, you know, sort of like the first step is, is you know, you know, in recovery is acknowledging you have a problem, right? And so like yeah. this acknowledgement that it's hard, um, I thought was really sort of very simple and important in that speech last night. And I think it's a good way of sort of a kind of good entry point into thinking about this is like, it's, it's going to be hard. It is hard work, but what is the work? What do you think? I mean, yeah. what well, is I mean, yes. I mean, that's, that is, um, I mean, you know, of course, the million-dollar question in so many ways. But, you know, I, and the, the work exists, at, you know, at, um, uh, at so many different levels. Um, and, um, you know, even though in my book I, I critique implicit bias a lot, I think it's got, it, it's got a lot to teach us. It's not like implicit bias isn't real. It's not like, you know, personal attitudes and sort of, you know, dealing with with one's own, um, uh, you know, uh, own prejudices uh, is uh, is not important. It's very important. But sort of like everything from sort of questioning yourself and your own place in society up through, you know, the largest structural, you know, both historical and structural um, uh, institutions that sort of perpetuate uh, inequality. Um, you know, that ranging from, you know, differential access to, to loans or job discrimination or access to health care. I mean, there's just so many, I mean, you know, it is pervasive. And so, so part of it is what do you do is, you, to a certain degree, you sort of like you do what you can, 
Right. And, and it's just sort of realizing the hard work and that that it's ongoing and it's, it's not going away, which is both depressing, but also um, that's sort of how life is. Um, you know, you've got obstacles you have to deal with. So, um, so you, you know, I, I guess, you know, when people ask me something like that, I guess, I, uh, you know, the first response is sort of you, you do what you can. Um, yeah. And um, I think one, one of the things I really think about is, I mean, you know, I'm a historian, right, as well as a, as a, well as a legal scholar. And, and in terms of sort of like individuals thinking about their own place in, in this larger structure and this larger sort of history of, of this problem, of this persistent problem, is it's not just about your unconscious biases. I mean, those are real and those are important, but we have lots of unconscious biases and not lots of um, it's also realizing that um, don't use the idea of unconscious bias as an excuse um, for blindness or ignorance, right? Because we all have dark sides of ourselves. We know we're there, but we just, you know, we don't want to face up to. Um, and I think sometimes, so, so I think there's, a, you know, while implicit bias is a real thing, racism is too, and they're different. And you don't want to use the idea of implicit bias as an excuse for sort of letting you off the hook for being implicated in racism, right? And um, one of the ways I, I talk about this is um, realizing, again, not just the implicit bias, but the racism in us, is to think about, um, you know, everybody lies, right? Everybody tells a lie from time to time. But not everybody is a liar. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, there are certain people where you just say, you know, they're they're a liar, right? You know, you can't trust them. They just lie all the time. You know, certain prominent people spring to mind, but we don't have to go there right now. But um, but that's different, right, from saying, you know, everybody is capable. You know, certainly everybody in a sort of structural position of, of superiority in a racist society is capable of being racist, right? You know, we all... Um, you know, speaking now, we are, we, you know, a, a white man, right? And, um, and, you know, are capable of racist acts. That doesn't make you a racist. I mean, it can, but it doesn't necessarily, right? Just like telling a lie doesn't make you a liar. It's part of who you are, and you don't want to just sort of say, oh, well, I, you know, that lie, it was unconscious. I didn't mean to do it. No, you know, you meant to do it. Right. So there's something to the, the repetitive components to it. Like if you keep doing it over and over again, other people will start seeing you a certain way. So if we're calling out someone's racist behavior, should we use the term racist? Because sometimes people can dig their heels in. And I feel like there's a better way to coax them out sometimes, yeah? Hmm. Well, yeah, this is, you know, it's a, it's a very delicate hmm. line in some respects, right? So... This, is, this has been one of the big themes of, I think, of and appeals of work on implicit bias is because it seems somehow less threatening um, it, to tell people, oh, you know, it's not that you're racist, it's just that you have these unconscious biases over which you have no control. And so you're not really to blame. And so that is much less threatening. And on the one hand, I get sort of, I mean, on the one hand, for certain things, that's absolutely true. But for some things, it's not right. For some things, it's it's it could be willful blindness. It could be self-delusion. I mean, you know, who among us again does not delude ourselves about one thing or another? 
um, especially if it's uncomfortable. Um, and sort of like it's realizing that, so, so it's important um, on the one hand to, you know, you don't want people to shut down. And I get the appeal of calling something implicit bias as a way of sort of inviting somebody into a more constructive conversation without them feeling threatened. But on the other hand, if you start calling too much stuff implicit bias, if you start calling the willful blindness to one's own essentially racist behavior, um, implicit bias, it lets you off the hook. It lets you avoid doing what Kamala Harris, Harris was saying, which is let you avoid doing the hard work of confronting that part of yourself, right? So that's where, and that's where coming back to the line is like, it allows you to lie to yourself and say, oh, it's just implicit bias. It's not, and, and again, and what's, and, but, but what I think is the other thing I was saying about lying is what I think makes it perhaps more possible for you to sort of cross that difficult bridge just to say, yes, I can acknowledge that I harbor these, you know, that that was a racist thing to say or a racist action. That doesn't necessarily, you know, infuse my identity as to, to the extent that it makes me a racist, right? You know, you can, again, again, you can tell a lie without being a liar. You can commit a racist act, right, um, without being a racist. See, I think this is, and I'd like your opinion on this, can we use the I am approach in this? Because remember, the I am is saying everyone's doing the best they can, but if you don't like it, you can change it. And if we can understand why we do what we do without that judgment, we, I think, can be more honest, you know, because the I am is saying, let's look again at why we do what we do based on the influence of these four domains, your home, the social domain, the biological domain, and the I see. How do I see myself? How do we think other people see me? It's saying, let's look again, again, look. Again, like to repeat something, look like the spectator. Let's respect why we do what we do. That's not the same thing as condoning it or liking it. Yeah. But to understand it, how are you meant to change something if you don't know why you're doing it? And the implicit bias, the unconscious bias, there is a biological component to it. There, there is this tribalism. There is this idea that if you don't look like me, somehow you're not part of my group, which means you're more dangerous. But once we know that, we can change it because it's just not the case anymore. We are not. We don't need to be divided into these tribes. Like maybe we did a couple of million Specifically years ago. with, isn't there also history to go along with the biology with the... Uh anti-black racism because it started yeah. as almost like a PR thing like saying don't worry guys it's okay to sell these people they're not really people right exactly yeah. professor you want to comment well, on and that? I think that's critical to sort of look at the look at the sort of the relationship here between the biological and the historical um, and again I think this is one of the critical things to tease out in in sort of understanding and critiquing sort of the both the promise and the limitations of something like implicit bias so on the one hand, sort of biologically, um, you know, humans definitely have this sort of in-group, out-group um, sort of coding, right? Um, where it is, you know, we do, we do sort of form, you know, the, you know, we we do sort of have this. Uh, you know, we are social animals, right? And one of the way you, one of the ways you become a social animal is also by defining who's in your group and who's outside your group. And so that sort of out group wariness, I mean, there's been sort of like, you know, 
you know, anthropological and evolutionary psychological studies done of this sort of thing, um, you know, has has a sort of, you know, embodied component to it, a biological component. But I would say that's that sort of outgroup suspicion is very different from racism, as from what we're calling modern racism historically. And the reason I say that is because if we're talking on an evolutionary time scale about developing um, uh, wariness to or su a suspicion of sort of the outgroup, right? Evolutionarily speaking, the outgroup for millennia, right, for most of human history the overwhelming majority of human history, was the group over the hill. Right. Right. It was the group maybe a day's walk away. Right. Right. It was a group that looked not that different from you. And um, so on the one hand, that kind of in-group, out-group suspicion probably has a biological basis. Um, and it's something that sort of, Racism, which you could, you know, trace back to, you know, modern racism, say, trace it back to, you know, five, six hundred years ago. So, you know, there are arguments over so like, what counts as modern racism. Well, you know, let's just say, you know, racism of, of the founding of this country, right, and the development of slavery in this country, um, to a certain degree could be understood as taking advantage of that. Um, but historically, I think Tom was very right. It's like the... The, what happened with enslavement was a sort of post hoc rationalization for the need to keep this population permanently subordinate Agreed. in this country historically because what had been happening in the 1600s is we were importing lots of white indentured servants from you know Ireland or from you know or poor Englishmen or whatever coming in Scotsmen right to to um, become indentured servants, but then after seven years, they would be essentially free. And they started becoming kind of rabble-rousing, and the people of the elites were worried, like, we need a more reliable source of labor that isn't going to become free after seven years of indenture. And so they developed the slave trade, but then there's this rationalization of, like, how do you keep this population enslaved? You start developing this ideology of... of ingrained in you know the idea of sort of essential difference and ingrained um inferiority um arising out of that sort of social and political need and it's sort of so um uh uh so that so you know it takes advantage in some ways of this this kind of prejudice but it also is something historically very distinct and serves serves you know you know general in-group out-group kind of psych psychological aversion doesn't erect, erect structures of power um, and subordination and you know uh, uh, distribution of goods and authority in in the way that racism does. Yeah, and I think it's such an important distinction. The reason I was bringing it up was to say that you know there may be this underlying biological component, but there are yeah. three other domains: there's right. your home domain, the social domain, and the I see how I see well, myself, how I think other people see me. Absolutely. Well, that's what's so good, especially in terms of like. The, the social and the biological difference, right. yeah, which is really sort of what I, you know, when I'm talking about the historical, I'm sort of talking about the social, but seeing the interaction between the two there. Yeah. 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 So, so if we look at these four domains for a moment, home, social, biological, and IC, 
can this serve as a roadmap to the hard work that we need to do? Because maybe there are certain things that we can define. For instance, let's start at home. Yeah. Right? What do we teach our kids? You know, a, a kid isn't born, infant isn't born racist. Right. Somehow this is taught. So what about that, Professor? How do we actually begin teaching this? Let's, let's start at home. Yeah, well, um, I, you know, I, if, I did, with the caveat that I'm not a child psychologist. It's okay, neither am I. I'm a child psychologist. <laughs> it's much, much worse. Um, you know? But, um, you know, is, uh, you know, absolutely. I mean, again, it's, it's sort of, um, I think part of it is not trying to hide things. Um, but part of it is just being very, you know, I mean, I'm just thinking to my experience of, you know, how did I raise uh, our daughter is, uh, you know, we were very deliberate about very simple things like look for children's books that have diverse characters in them. Um, and so, um, and um, I remember it's very interesting when um, our uh, uh, when our daughter was our daughter was born in Cambridge, and uh, we were living there then. And uh, my wife very self consciously, you know, we knew we were asking around about pediatricians and. My wife, you know, we got some, we got one particular pediatrician, very highly recommended. My wife was really interested, really wanted this person to be the pediatrician, and she wanted to be the pediatrician because she was a woman of color. And the reason why it was not for affirmative action reasons, like, oh, I want to give a woman of color, you know, more, you know, this person had a full plate, you know, she's a very, you know, excellent doctor. But she wanted the idea of having our daughter grow up with, a, you know, especially a woman of color who was in a sort of like a position of authority, sort of like experience that this is somebody who you trust, who you go to, who tell you, know, who, as you're growing up and you're looking, you're forming this idea. Oh, yes, this is somebody, somebody who looks like this is somebody who has authority, who I trust, who, you know, um, helps me. Yeah, you know, little things like yeah, there are a million little things like that. Sure, and, and that's exactly it. Is it is those small changes that send that message to our kids. Yeah, and we 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 need we need to do this. I'm, you know, I I have wonderful neighbor, and they've got a, a little boy, and um, I hear he's about maybe two or three years old, and every now and then I hear the mom saying to him, um, nobody likes a bossy kid. Nobody likes a bossy kid. And he'll say, nobody likes a bossy kid. And she's teaching him. You know, there's a difference between being bossy and being assertive. It's these, it's these small things that, that parents can do. These small changes have big effects. But I want to shift right to the social domain because really, you know, the bulk of the work yeah. has to be in that domain. The IC domain, how I see myself, how I think other people see me, I think that they... The I am approach can help us to feel calmer about exploring these sides of ourselves that we really don't like. Mm -hmm. If you don't like something, you can change it. This is something, though, that we have to change. We have to change it as an individual, but as a society. And that's where, Professor, maybe you can tell us, what, where do we go? What is the work, at least in this larger social domain? Uh, just as you were speaking, I was thinking of this earlier too. Is actually, I want to talk about, um, if I may, a of connection course. actually between IC and social domain. Okay. And so, I, mean, I don't know if this is quite, quite apt, but in terms of like um, seeing people, right, or see or how you see yourself, right, is I think there for me this is, and, and it will connect up to the social, is. 
the power of the video of the killing of George Floyd. Mm. And my read of that, or of one aspect of that, again, there are many aspects of, it, of its power. But I think, you know, in the aftermath of it, there was this huge mobilization, and the mobilization was multiracial, right? In response to a number of other historically, you know, uh, killings, uh, especially police killings of black people, uh, the, the turnout has not been as wide and, and not as multiracial. And it took me a while to view the video because it's, it's a very, you know, um, uh, upsetting video. But one of the things that really struck me about it is for those people who have seen even just part of it is what is going, what I think is going on for a, for a white viewer, which is me, um, is Officer Chauvin had his knee, didn't just have his knee on the neck of George Floyd for all that time. But in the camera shot of it, in the original video that the young woman was taking, he's looking right at you. And as you're viewing that, I mean, it's just sort of like looking at you just, you know, brazenly. And I felt what he's doing there is he is inviting the viewer to become complicit in his act. Mm-hmm. You know, it is a sort of, you know, gaze of complicity that's going on there. And I think, and again, I have no, like, data to back this up. Uh, but I intuit that part of what was going on in helping mobilize so many um, non-people of color, so many white people to sort of join people of color in protests all around the country, was the idea is that what that gaze is telling you is if you accept what I'm doing, you are complicit in this murder. And so people, it was forcing people to confront themselves and in a way to see, you know, how they, how they see Chauvin, but also how they see themselves. And it was forcing them to confront themselves. And it said like, uh, and I can either respond to this. If I don't respond to this, I will start seeing myself in a very different way. I will start seeing myself as complicit. Unfortunately, so many went that other way, like as we talked with slavery, trying to rationalize it after the facts, like people saying like, well, he had he had yeah. fentanyl, he, he looked at a picture of marijuana or something. I could care less, yeah. but if I can make this person less than human, it's okay. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's, again, you know, both the... Um uh, disturbing and, you know, and frustrating aspect of, you know, this, and that's why it's hard work, right? Because it's never like, oh, everybody sees the light. You know, the, you know, you know, racial progress doesn't come without conflict. Conflict doesn't mean violence, right? But it means friction. It means, um, it means you've got obstacles to overcome and, um, and there will always be that, right? And, and one of the, one of the things you, you know, and what you bring up there, Tom, also reminds me of the fact that, um, and this goes back to some ways, the distinct, you know, discussing about the relationship between implicit bias and racism, and again, and the social, is I think one of the big challenges 
for us is, you know, it's always easy to look back and say, oh, slavery, that was bad, right? But, you know, we've come so far. It's the big challenge is not, I mean, you know, it, it will actually, I mean, given what's been happening over Confederate memorials and stuff, even that is still, right, you know, uh, you know debated, right? But, um, but it's always more of a challenge to identify racism in real time, right? And um, in the time of slavery, you had John C. Calhoun, prominent senator and vice president, major apologist for the South, giving speeches on the Senate floor in the 1830s saying, oh, slavery, it's good for the slaves. It's taking them out of benighted Africa and exposing them to the benefits of Western culture and Christianity. And we are helping them. And then, you know, you fight the Civil War and slavery's gone. And people are saying, oh, well, isn't that good? We got rid of slavery. We don't have slavery anymore. What do you have? Oh, we've got you've got Jim Crow. You've got separate but equal. Oh, but that's not slavery. It's separate but it's equal, right? And then you have that for a while, and people start realizing, no, that's actually kind of racist. And then you have Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, and the Civil Rights Movement of the 50s and 60s, and people are realizing, oh yeah, um, you know, Jim Crow. That's not so good. And but then you can say, okay, we got rid of Jim Crow. And so in the 70s and 80s, you can say, oh well, things may be rough, but we don't have Jim Crow. But then you realize things like, oh, well, we've got what Michelle Alexander has called the new Jim Crow, right? We've got this hugely disproportionate incarceration of black populations for minor nonviolent drug offenses. We've got, you know, driving while black. We've got going to a Starbucks while black, you know. Uh, we've got jogging in your neighborhood while black. And that's Ticket all. quotas. And, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, what, did, what was that? Ticket quotas. Yeah, ticket quotas. Exactly, right. And, and it's like and stuff, stop and frisk and all, and that's all, you know, and so, oh yeah, well, you know, maybe that's not so good either. And so, but, and, but we made progress, but it's never, it's the thing is we make progress, but it's never done because progress is not sort of like this one. It's not a straight arrow. It's more like, a, I don't know, sort of like a, like a corkscrew kind of loops back on itself. And, you know, you move, but you kind of keep looping back. Like, you know, we're certainly in a period of reaction right now. I mean, I'm listening, and part of me is feeling so discouraged that, you know, can we really do this? Yeah. What What are the obstacles? Um, do we really, as white people, think that we're going to lose that much? You know, it, it, I mean, there's there's something, something again, gets back to that biological domain that that it's not an excuse but it is an influence and we need to be aware of it because we don't need to do that anymore there's there's much more safety if you will in having a larger group you know? oh absolutely but and but i also think it goes back to the home right because a lot of what historical racist appeals have been about is the idea of somehow your family your home is threatened Right, and and so it's ride not just like your group, but it's often it's often becomes this very visceral something about something is and, and it is it's about the the lesson right something is going to be taken away, right, um, and and it's exactly as you say realizing no not really not right. so much but, um, but, you know realizing it as as you know addition not a subtraction 
Right. But it's the realization, again, is the prefrontal cortex. It's a thinking function. The fear that you're oh, going to yeah. lose something is a limbic function. Yeah. It's this ancient thing. You know, one, one of the books I wrote was called Outsmarting Anger. And it looked at what is, what is anger about? You know, you, you either are envious that somebody's got more than you or suspicious that they're going to take something from you. Um, that's part of anger. But that's where the I am comes in. When's the last time you got angry at someone who was treating you with respect? You know, you don't, right? Because anger is an emotion designed to change things. And that's part of, of what this movement feels like, right? We know that there's anger wanting to change things. And anger, it's not, there's nothing wrong with anger. It's what you do with it. But the concern is that it will elicit defensiveness in other people. And that, I think, happens. Wait, wait, yeah. wait. I'm not racist. Yeah. I, you know, if these biases are that they're unconscious. Yeah. As if you don't have any responsibility for yeah. it. Well, you do. You know? so yeah, you well, and that's the thing is sort of ultimately, right, is taking responsibility. That's a critical thing, right? Sort of, again, that's in some ways coming back to the whole self level is, is because... Um, you know, at the social level, we have to demand accountability, right? And that could be, again, it could be, you know, arresting and trying Officer Chauvin and, you know, let the wheels of justice work their way. Um, uh, it could be, um, you know, revo- revising, you know, incarceration policies for low-level drug offenses, whatever, you're decriminalizing drug, you know, decriminalizing marijuana, whatever. Um, but at the home level, um, you know, it's it's also taking responsibility for yourself because you can't you can't you know <clears throat> expect yourself to be in a position to demand institutions to take responsibility if you're not taking responsibility. Right. And, and responsibility is different than blame and shame. Yes. Yes. Responsibility is empowering. You know, has anybody come up with the pun chauvinistic yet? Has anybody done that with? Oh no! With <laughs> well, I don't know. But, you know, I, I don't know. Here first, folks. Sorry, maybe I shouldn't go there. Um, yeah, but 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 it is about responsibility, yeah. and there's there's that is what is going to be, I think, the agent of change. You know, is just taking responsibility for it. The I am is saying, you know, you've got to be able to understand why you do what you do, in order to change it. Yeah, and, and there are these laws. Go on, John. Oh no, I, I was just going to say. I mean, and one of the ways again where, and this is central. In, you know, I think. One of the insights of implicit bias is this idea of, uh, you know, when 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 they're doing you know, uh, the kind of implicit bias tests of people when they have their, uh, they do you take these implicit bias tests while your head is in a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, right, an fMRI, and I say, oh yes, you know, your amygdala is lighting up, right, and and you know, again, sort of, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, cognitive neuroscience stuff about what's really happening and some, you know, disputes, but. But nonetheless, it's this idea of sort of like, you know, emotional salience or fear or something is being activated um, uh, oftentimes. And, the, you know, and then sort of dorsal level prefrontal cortex kind of executive functions try to, you know, moderate that or whatever. But, um, uh, but you definitely see that at work. But um, And so um, are those excuses, do you think? I mean, is, is that part of what we've also created for ourselves is by saying, well, you know, it's part of our biology. We, we, we're going through the domains. That, let's go to the IC domain. So what do you think about this? You wanted to say a bit more about 
the ice. Yeah, so and this was sort of following up in some ways of what I was talking about with the um, you know the video that I was referencing is in sort of critiques of um, and that try to sort of identify and unearth and make people think about sort of racism in everyday life in ways that we might not understand. One of the you know one of the sort of classic easy easy straightforward methods is simply you know take a vignette. I mean again, and when I teach in law school, you often like you know have a case, which is a little story about something happening, and you just say, okay. I mean you know and, and in some ways this is this is what happened in a very corny way in one of these John Grisham movies. I can't remember what it was, what a time to kill or something. But you go on and you're telling this story, and then you say, okay, you know imagine the person is right. In other words, the people, especially say you're talking to a white person and they're sort of imagining the story, say, imagine the person is black or, you know, Latino or Asian or whatever. But sort of, you know, imagine, right, in, in a, sort of like flip the script um, to sort of like, you know, imagine, you know, you know imagine, imagine what would happen, what, what would have happened to George Floyd if he were white. It's a very simple kind of thing to ask, you know, to think about what happens in these types of situations. Um, there's even this hashtag um, that that's gone around. I've just sort of referred to it. I haven't actually looked at it. It's called, I think it's called climbing while white. You know, where people talk about, oh yeah, I remember when I was in my frat and the police busted the party and they found all this cocaine and they just let us off with a warning. I remember in uh, at Bridgewater when I was making a short film, I had a jerry can, a red jerry can, you know, it was Chris filled with crystal light for effect, but I remember uh, just writing the uh, campus officers saying like, "Hey, I'm going to be doing this," and he just did a quick drive by, just said like, "Hey, you're good." Right. Yeah. And, and and again, sort of like imagine, right? If you were black in that situation, so like it just, you know, sort of the the flip, you know, sort of flipping th thinking of things in that way. And again, it's this question of, you know, it feeds into these larger questions of being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Um, but it's also, I think, a really good way of connecting kind of the personal to the social, to realizing that, you know, it's not just, you know, that, that the way you are seeing something is tied into these larger social structures um, when, when you sort of, again, kind of flip the script that way. Um, and, um, and it's a, you know, it's a very, very sort of, uh, you know, easy thing to, I, I, you know, the circumstances to sort of set that up in some ways are, are very tricky to do it you know, in an effective way. But it's also in many ways, it's a very small answer. But it can be, it can be every bit as revelatory as when somebody takes an implicit association test and they find out, oh, wow, I have, a, I have an unconscious bias, you know, for or against this particular group that I didn't realize. Um, and I think it can be very revelatory in this, uh, in the idea of like, um, you know, Sort of realizing, realizing then that because um, it, it gives you a sense of how race and racism are so deeply present in ways that we don't normally think about, right? It seems that you know, in many ways, racism, everyday racism, is, is invisible to us because it's the kind of it's the air we breathe, right? It's the water we swim in, and to be able to take yourself out of that for a minute by asking these sorts of questions, I think, is is it, it's. Uh, um, yeah, because again, it's it's about reflecting on yourself, like because you realize how you how you're seeing the world, 
um, and um, and also how the world is seeing you, right? In a sense, especially if you're a white person, that the world is seeing you in a certain way, that they would see you differently if you were of a different race. Right, and that's the part that that is really was so revelatory, as you say. I, I, I the other free association I have is the bias that we have to people who resist this idea as well, who are racist, who are saying, you know this this is the right way the white way and look at uh, uh, and i mean i i get visceral tommy wanted to say something or what because the, the example that popped into my mind as you just said was um if you cameron hinnens people using that story as a blunt instruments for people who don't know it was a five-year-old boy was murdered by a black man who was immediately arrested and people are saying, well, where are the protests for him? And mm. well, you're, it's it's very apples and oranges. Yeah. It's obviously yeah. an atrocity. The other, though, is a mark of a failed state that needs to be fixed. Right. And 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 we have this remarkable social structure that Jan maybe can comment on that that I had really minimal idea of how. It has just slowly and insidiously created these legal structures yeah. that continue to promote this profound bias. Yeah. Well, I mean, and and it is pervasive in so many areas. I mean, and, but but what has especially been, you know, present in over the last few months is sort of the way policing happens in this country, which is different from the way it happens in any other. Um, industrialized democracy in the world, where, um, you know, first of all, to be fair, we ask the police to do way too much, but we also, and, and we use them for all sorts of inappropriate purposes. I mean, um, again, you know, uh, you know uh, especially, say, dealing, you know, dealing where you should have psychiatric social workers conditions, you know, being sent out. And, and again, some countries do, you know, have the equivalent of that, right? You know, you don't call the police for somebody who is sort of like acting out in public, you call, um, you know, you, it's a public health issue. It's not a police issue. So many of our public health issues, I mean, you know, drugs, right? Um, we deal with as a criminal issue rather than a public health issue. Mm -hmm. The pervasive problem, you know, criminalizing these problems um, and, they, and the criminalization becomes racialized. Um, and then more, more, again, more particularly to our situation is it's also a, incredibly hard to hold um, police officers accountable for their for their actions, and uh, for a variety of things, legal doctrines, known as qualified immunity, um, also arbitration clauses that are set up in union negotiating, you know, agreements, things of this sort. But they make again the the issue of sort of responsibility and accountability uh, very difficult, and that sort of feeds popular anger um, over over the situation. Um, so it does um, it does manifest um, uh, in uh, in those larger you know those those larger uh, structures and and the and people becoming aware of how policing happens in this country in a way they hadn't before because again for most people you know when people one way I like thinking about this people talk about you know, defunding the police or abolishing the police and what does this mean does it mean we won't have police anymore um, and you know the shorter answer is no. 
But a slightly longer answer, but still very short, a nice way I, th I think it was once put is to think about what, what would defunding the police look like? It would look like, um, it would look like the way policing looks in you know, Concord or Lexington, as opposed to the way it looks in Roxbury or Dorchester. Right, in the sense that, oh yes, you know, you see, you know, you know here where I'm in Minneapolis, I see a cop car in my neighborhood maybe once a year. Right. And, you know, it's, I mean, you know, there are high crime neighborhoods where you need a higher, higher percentage of police to protect against violence and so forth. But the idea is, is, you know, that, that police should not be an omnipresent, um, uh, 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 play, you know, have an omnipresent place in, in one's, in anybody's community. Well, we certainly, in, in, in our town, we have a remarkable police chief and it's all about community policing. Yeah which is where these folks, you know, you, you don't really see them. Um, but when you do, it's not always because something bad has happened. Very often it's because something good has happened and the police are part of it, you know, and, and they contribute to that. Um, so at some point we'll hopefully have our chief back on. We, we've got a, a couple minutes left and, you know, the IM has two rules because all the domains interconnect. Small changes have big effects. You don't have to change everything. So one of the things we ask our guests, Professor, what small change can you recommend to our listening audience to help move us forward? Well, I, you know, I think it's sort of what I was just talking about. I think there's this kind of smallest change that's a very easy thing to do in, in your everyday life is from time to time, when you see a situation that looks somehow racialized, ask yourself, how would it be, right, if the races were changed? How would it be if my race was changed, if I was in this, you know, if this happened to me? How would it be if the person who you're learning about, who you're, you know, who's in the news or whatever, or who you're walking by at the store or whatever, you know, who you're, you know, it's like, oh, well, would, would I be, would I be talking to this person? You know, would I be, you know, would I be telling this person, what are you doing here? if they weren't a person of color. Mm. Um, and just sort of like take that moment to just pause and think about that. I think that's, that's, a, that's a very, you know, that, that's a, a small, you know, I think a very small thing, but it's a very critical kind of habit of self-reflection. Um, yes. And this, this, this is one of, one of the phrases that we have is, uh, it's much more important to be reflective than reflexive and to really begin to reflect because being reflective is that thinking part of our brain. So I think that's, that's great advice. You know, it's really put yourself in their shoes. What, yeah. what if that was yeah. different? What if it was me? Yeah. The other rule of the I am, because everybody has one and everybody's interested in what you think or feel about them, this means you control no one, you influence everyone. Yeah. Professor Khan, what kind of influence are you hoping to be? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I guess, you know, what I, you know, I'm a teacher. And so, you know, I don't, I don't try to propose like specific solutions to problems. I want people to think about problems in more subtle and complex ways. Um, and, um, you know, that, that's the big thing is uh, because 
because solutions are iterative things. They, you know, they take place over time and they need to change and adapt to different situations. So my main thing is sort of try to give people the tools to creatively and constructively adapt. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, Professor Khan, thank you. Tom, we'll be back next week. We really will. We'll have more episodes. Ben, thanks a lot. Dr. Joe Show signing off for this week. Did she do it for love or was she tired of the pill?